This is a Cato Special Podcast. I'm Caleb Brown. President Biden has nominated Kentanji Brown-Jackson to be the next justice on the U.S. Supreme Court to replace the departing Stephen Breyer. What do we know about her judicial philosophy? What experience gives us an indication about how she might rule on important issues of the day? Cato's Thomas Berry comments. Tell me about Kentanji Brown-Jackson. What are you looking for in terms of uh, ultimate qualifications? Well, Kentanji Brown-Jackson has been a judge on the D.C. Circuit for about 10 months. She was a judge on the D.C. District Court about eight years before that. And her most relevant experience before that was serving for about four years on the U.S. Sentencing Commission, which is a fairly powerful independent agency uh, that deals with sentencing reform. Uh, So those are her three primary qualifications. Uh, In addition, she's well known for having clerked for Justice Breyer. So some would see this as a fitting uh, succession, much like Justice Kavanaugh clerked for Justice Kennedy, whom he replaced. So Clark Neely has made reference to the fact that Judge Jackson has never served in a courtroom representing the government and unlike every other justice has defense experience. What does that matter? Indeed, she would be the first justice with defense experience since Thurgood Marshall left the court in the early 90s. And as Clark has uh, studied, the federal judiciary is extremely disproportionately full of former government advocates as opposed to former advocates against the government. So that would be an important and currently unrepresented uh, constituency on the high court, someone who has spent time representing criminal defendants. What do we know about her based on opinions that she's written while serving as a judge? She hasn't had too many controversial cases. Most of her time has been spent as a federal district court judge. Probably her most famous case was about whether Don McGahn could be compelled to testify uh, before a congressional committee. Uh, One thing libertarians may like about that opinion is that she did not toss it on the notion that it was a non-justiciable political question. She held that the judicial branch uh, needs to resolve these disputes between the executive and the legislative branches. Uh, And so she didn't shy away from what was a very tricky and difficult constitutional question. And her opinion did cite the Federalist Papers. So she uh, at least uh, made some good efforts towards looking at the original meaning of the uh, uh, executive branch. Now, I I know that Judges who are up for a potential seat on either a high-level appeals court or the U.S. Supreme Court often don't have a deep, accessible batch of writings that we can refer to. The fact that we don't have that many opinions from her, how else should uh, people – what else should people go by when trying to assess her judicial philosophy? Probably people will focus quite a bit on her experience on the Sentencing Commission, the fact that she, for example, was involved in lowering the disparity between crack cocaine sentences and other drug offenses, and was also involved in lowering the default uh, sentencing for nonviolent drug offenses. Uh, Those are two, from a libertarian perspective, positive indications that she may be uh, sympathetic to criminal justice reform arguments on the high court. Besides that, people will certainly look at her clerkships, the fact that she clerked for Justice Breyer rather than someone on the more originalist side of the court may be an indication that she isn't um, quite as originalist as some other nominees would be. Uh, But other than that, hopefully more light will be shed in her confirmation hearings, uh, which I hope will focus on substantive questions of judicial philosophy. What kinds of cases, uh, because I know, I believe, Justice Kavanaugh was on the D.C. circuit. 
Um, what kinds of cases come before that court? It's a very heavy administrative law docket. Many of the questions seem rather abstruse to the general public. It's often a question simply of, is a case, uh, can the case be decided by the executive branch uh, or the judicial branch? Uh, is the case ready to be decided yet? They may seem um, sort of not easily accessible to the general public, but they often involve important questions of how much power can executive branch agencies have to set their own policies rather than uh, deferring to the legislative branches. Uh, the indication, at least thus far, is that in most of her cases on the district court as well, she generally deferred to the power of administrative agencies to set their own policies. Partially, though, that was predetermined by existing doctrines such as the Chevron doctrine, which lower court judges are compelled to follow until the Supreme Court changes its rules. Where would we find Judge Jackson on issues like the First Amendment? So far, uh, only one case that really involved the First Amendment on her district court time, uh, it was a commercial speech case about whether an administrative agency could compel uh, meat packers to list with extreme specificity where the meat they sell came from. She applied the Supreme Court's fairly deferential doctrine for commercial speech, which unfortunately gives less protection on that ground than to other kinds of speech. Uh, she was compelled to follow that doctrine, but she didn't express any concerns or disagreements with it, which uh, may may indicate that she's not as likely to favor uh, increased protections for commercial speech. That's one thing that I think is is notable as people try to evaluate this nominee and try to understand what she thinks about things is that as a lower court judge, properly, scrupulously applying Supreme Court precedent is a big part of the job. And so it's really hard to draw particular conclusions based on uh, a judge's mere application of Supreme Court precedent. That's correct. Judges can sometimes signal which way they would go with sort of extraneous comments about their approval or disapproval of a doctrine, but ultimately they're bound to follow it. And as a district court judge, also bound to follow D.C. Circuit precedent. The other thing we really don't know very much about is how she will interact with other judges. She's only spent a brief period of time on the D.C. Circuit where you have to decide in three judge panels. So one of the big uh, questions will be, if she is confirmed to the Supreme Court, will she be more like a Justice Kagan? who's done an excellent job at building coalitions for more moderate opinions? Or might she be more like a Justice Sotomayor, who often writes dissents uh, that uh, are more ideologically pure, perhaps some would say, but less likely to get other uh, justices uh, of other ideologies to sign on? So how she goes about either building coalitions or setting her own path, really something we, we don't have much of an idea on be uh, because she spent so little time on, on the appellate court. Thomas Berry is a research fellow at the Cato Institute's Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies. Subscribe to and give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 